Verse 1 of chapter 6. Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. So it's the Sabbath day. It's the second Sabbath, similar to like the second Saturday of the month. And you may be wondering, well, what exactly is the Sabbath? I've heard that phrase, but I'm not sure that I know what it means. It was for the nation of Israel from Friday night sundown to the sun going down on Saturday. God worked six days in creation and he rested the seventh day and called the children of Israel uh, to rest. And the, the nation of Israel, Orthodox Jews, still celebrate Sabbath when the sun goes down Friday until the sun goes down on Saturday. So this is the second Sabbath and Jesus is with his disciples. They're walking and the disciples choose to have a snack. And they reach out for some wheat thins, right? And they rub the grain in their hands and they're, they're eating the grain. This is a little bit unfamiliar to us, but Deuteronomy 23 gives permission for this if you're walking in someone's field, as long as you didn't start to chop down uh, the wheat. If you were able to just grab some in your hands, then there was allowance for that. But the issue is, is it's on the Sabbath. So is this a violation of the Sabbath day? The scribes and the Pharisees felt so in verse two. And some of the Pharisees said to them, why are you doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath day? Well, according to who? According to man's perspective or God's perspective? Was this really a violation of the Sabbath day? The Pharisees had added 39 laws to clarify what work was. Isn't that ridiculous? So 39 laws. It would be so exhausting just to try to figure out whether you were breaking the Sabbath day or not. And what got Israel in such a dark place spiritually, and especially the scribes and the Pharisees, is Jesus confronted them and he says that you've made the word of God of no effect because of your traditions. Their traditions became more important than the word of God. They elevated their own opinion over God's word. Something I think that's really exciting and refreshing to do is to look at God's word from a fresh perspective. Wipe the chalkboard clean and say, what is God's word saying? What's it communicating? What's the, the meaning of the text? And so the scribes and the Pharisees have taken the Sabbath and turned it into something that God had never intended. So we always want to evaluate or elevate, excuse me, God's word above all else, above our opinions, above our traditions. In verse 3, but Jesus answered them saying, have you not even read this? When David did, when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, he went into the house of God, took and ate showbread, and also gave some to those who were with him, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. Jesus would be offending them by saying, have you not even read this? These guys were Bible experts. They spent all the time reading the Bible. And so Jesus is like, have you ever read this? Do you know this part in the Bible? Do you know this section of scripture? And they would have read it. They would have known. David is on the run from Saul. Saul's trying to kill him. And he comes to the priest and the priest gives him some bread. And this bread was set aside for the priest. Leviticus tells us that it was only the priests that were to eat it. But in this moment, the priest decided to give some to David 
and to give some to David's men because he saw that human need was more important than this ritual. That this was a moment in time where he could extend this bread uh, to David. Jesus quotes this also in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 12. If you want to study it more and look it up later. But in this account in Matthew 12, Jesus brings up Hosea 6.6. And it says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. In the scribes and the Pharisees getting so legalistic, they missed mercy. And they missed the heart of God. And that's what Jesus calls out here in the scribes and the Pharisees with this discussion over the wheat thins. Saying, guys, you, you have missed mercy. What is one thing that we know about God's character over and over throughout Scripture? That he's merciful, that he is, is gracious. So they missed the love of God. They missed the, the mercy of God. And, and here Jesus is saying, he's saying, for I desire mercy. I desire for, for God's word to be implemented with this heart of mercy and with this heart of love. Not a compromise, not a compromising scripture in any way, but they missed mercy and they missed the knowledge of God. And it can be easy for us to do the same thing as we study the scriptures, is that we get to a place where we miss the mercy of God in our own lives and extending it to others as well. And I love verse 5. It says, And he said to them, The Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. The disciples, or, or excuse me, the Pharisees, they are going to understand exactly what Jesus is saying when he declares himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. So follow me on this. Follow this line of thinking. Because God gave the Sabbath day to the children of Israel. And then for Jesus to say that he's the Lord of the Sabbath is saying he has supremacy over the Sabbath. He's declaring himself to be God. There's some that read the Gospels and they're like, Jesus never said that he was God. Not true. He's saying he's God right here by declaring that he was Lord of the Sabbath. He's like, guys, not only have you missed mercy and you've missed the knowledge of God, but I am the Messiah, and I'm the Lord over the Sabbath day. And so for us to understand that the Sabbath day points to Jesus Christ. In Colossians, it tells us that the Sabbath is a shadow of the substance of Christ. So the Sabbath and also the feasts, they point to the reality of who Jesus is. So as we're resting, it ultimately points to the rest that we have in Jesus. How does this apply to us as New Covenant believers? Are we required to have Sabbath on Saturday? Is it okay to have your Sabbath on Sunday? It might be on Monday. There's freedom in Christ to choose which day that you want to rest. But there could be those that are resting one day a week that don't know Christ, right? They may see the value of resting and get the benefit of rest. They get the practical rest but they don't know the spiritual rest that we have in Jesus. And we can know the best of both. I think it's good for us to rest one day a week. We're not designed to go seven days a week. Jesus said, he recorded for us that the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. So God designed the Sabbath for us because he knew we would need rest. If we're always going, 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 working, eventually we're going to just hit that point of burnout. But there's the spiritual truth 
that Jesus is our rest, that we get to live out our Christian life from this perspective of rest, where Christ has finished the work. I'm not trying to earn or deserve my salvation. It's been accomplished by Christ. Jesus at this moment is really going to step into his crucifixion in these next few verses because Jesus is going to heal a man with a withered hand. This is going to make the scribes and the Pharisees absolutely enraged to the point where they plot his death. And he knows it. He, he knows systematically by healing on the Sabbath day that it's going to make the scribes and the Pharisees so angry. In verse 6, now it happened on the Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught. So another Sabbath, he comes in to the synagogue as his custom and he teaches. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. He's got a withered hand. So the scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that he might find accusation against him. So the scribes and the Pharisees come to church with a different perspective, don't they? With a different reason. They come with a critical spirit. They're not coming to worship God. They're coming to try to entrap Jesus. They know Jesus is going to be there. It's his custom to be at the synagogue on the Sabbath to gather with God's people. And they're going, oh, this is perfect. There's a guy here with a need. There's a guy here with a withered hand. We know that Jesus is compassionate. Maybe he's going to, to heal on the Sabbath day. In verse 8, but he knew their thoughts. <laughs> Jesus knows our thoughts. What if our thoughts right now in the sanctuary were, were showing up like texts, like bubble texts, right? <laughs> We'd probably all run for our lives, right? <laughs> so Jesus is here. He's, he's in the synagogue. He knows the thoughts of the scribes and the Pharisees. He knows that they're trying to entrap him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, arise, stand here. And he arose and stood. How do you think this man with the withered hand felt? I would imagine that with this hand that is withered, that doesn't work properly, he didn't like to be the center of attention. If you have something in your body that doesn't work properly, that's a little bit abnormal from the standard, whatever that is, it's not fun for that to be pointed out. So, Imagine church service, and here's the guy with the withered hand, and Jesus is like, hey, dude, stand up. It's like, really? Are you doing this to me right now? Like, like I got I to gotta stand up and have all the attention drawn upon me? Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? So Jesus has got this question, can you do good on the Sabbath day? And for the scribes and the Pharisees, it became so ridiculous where you couldn't do good on the Sabbath because it was a violation of rest. Could you imagine? Let's say your neighbor has a heart attack and you're like, sorry, I can't help you today. It's the Sabbath, you know? There's someone that's clearly in need right in front of you. It's the opportunity to do good. It's the opportunity to save a life. And you're like, well, so I'm, I'm sorry. God wants me to rest today. Come back tomorrow. Right? I'm, not, I'm not available. I missed the heart of God. It doesn't even make sense. 
one thing that we see with the scribes and the Pharisees here is they don't care about the man with the withered hand. They don't care about what he's going through. They're not seeking God for what his heart for this man is. I would suggest to you that the scribes and the Pharisees, they're not lovers of God. They're not lovers of of God's word, even though that they would claim to. 1 John 4.20 has a pretty strong verse for us. It tells us that if we say that we love God and we hate our neighbor, that we're a liar. So it's one thing to be, man, I love God, but then I hate this person that's right, right in front of me. God says those two don't, don't go together. And here the scribes and the Pharisees, they claim to love God, but they're not loving people. They're, they're not loving this man with the withered hand that, that's right in front of them. And when he looked around at them, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. So his attention's upon the man. He says, I, I want you to, to stretch out your hand. One thing that's fascinating is to look at how Jesus healed people in the Gospels. He never does it the same way. And with this man with the withered hand, he could have simply spoken and said to him, be healed. And, and he was healed. But he asks something of the man. He, he asks him to, to stretch out his hand. Now, this is something that the man cannot do. I'm sure countless times in his life, he, he's tried to get his hand to work, but it, it doesn't work. It, it's broken. And yet now Jesus is telling him to, to stretch out his hand. And as he chooses to obey, as he chooses, there's something different about Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to respond to his words. And, and he attempts to do this impossible command. The miracle happens. And his hand's restored. And, and he's able to move it. And it works just like the other. We don't know if he was born this way or he went through an accident, but he experiences this healing from Christ. And I find so many places in scripture where God gives us an impossible command. In and of ourselves, we can't do it. Let's think of just a few. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Not that our wives are not lovable, but the standard is for us to love them the way that Jesus loves. That's a tall order. That's a tall stack of pancakes, right? It's like, how can I love the same way that Jesus loves? I don't have that capacity in and of myself. It's, it's an impossible command. Wives, what does God write to you in the area of marriage? To respect and to submit your husband. That might even be a more difficult task, Right? To say, I've, I've got to respect this guy. I've got to submit to him. How do I do that? The only way that that can happen is through God's work in our lives. And, and this is what we find. And I think this is the application for us. Is as we walk in obedience to these impossible commands, God intervenes with his power. We say, okay, God, you've, you've called me to this. This is the way that you want me to be as a husband. So I, I'm stepping into that. This is the way you want me to be as a wife. So I'm stepping into that. The children of Israel in the Old Testament, as they're coming into the promised land, the Jordan River is flooded. And God speaks to Joshua, says, have the priest take the Ark of the Covenant and come to the Jordan River and step in. And when they step into the, the Jordan River, I'm going to 
dry up the river. I'm going to stop the river so you can walk across on dry land. But the priests had to take that step of faith. They had to step into that impossible command. I wonder if the first two are like, okay, I, I got to step in. And then the last two come in and God, God moves. And we might be standing at those flooded river banks. We might be in that place with that withered hand and God is challenging us to step into that impossible command. And as we choose to walk in obedience, then that's when God comes in his power. God gives us commands to be thankful. He gives us commands to share our faith, to share the gospel. And apart from him, that's, that's impossible. But when we choose to step into that, that's when his power comes into our lives. But a lot of times we want the power to come first, don't we? God, why don't you give me the power first, then I'll step out. And God's saying, no, I want you to step out. What God's called us to in sexual integrity as believers is impossible apart from Christ's help. Sex is to be between a man and a woman inside of the commitment of marriage. Anything outside of that is sin. Pornography is sin. God is calling us to a specific design inside of sexuality. And as we choose to step out in obedience, then he gives us the power to be able uh, to do it. So step out. Where is brokenness and weakness in our life? Say, I'm going to step out in accordance with God's word and trust that God is going to give the power. I want to clarify one thing before we move on, though. Is there some that look at sections of scripture like this and they come with this teaching that, well, if you would just stretch out your hand, then you'd be healed. If you'd believe that God heals, then you would be healed. If you'd walk in obedience, then, then you would be healed. And the scripture is clear when it comes to our physical health, we are to ask God for healing. We are to come before him to call for the elders of the church and be anointed with oil. And, and God may choose to heal your physical body supernaturally, just like he did with this man with the withered hand. But there's also examples in scripture where God chooses not to heal in this lifetime. He will heal eventually, and that's with the glorified bodies. When you go to heaven, you'll be absolutely healed. And I hate to break it to you, in order for you to get your glorified body, this body does have to wear out. So it is going to happen unless the rapture of the church takes place. The apostle Paul had a thorn in his flesh and he prayed for three times that the Lord would take this from him. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Now you try to convince me that the apostle Paul didn't have enough faith or he wasn't walking in obedience. I've seen a lot of people get hurt from this teaching that, well, if you just had more faith, then God would want you to be healed. It's God's will for everyone to be healed. Well, there's a lot in scripture that says that God allows suffering. And it doesn't mean that he hates you or he's got anything against you, but he's using that in our lives. So we ask for healing and we trust for, for God's will. But this is a beautiful picture of us walking in obedience to those spiritual commands and then God giving us power. In verse 11, but they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. If we cross-reference this with Matthew 12 and Mark chapter 3, we also see it's at this point that they start to plot the death of Jesus. Jesus is choosing 
to lay his life down upon the cross. He knows where all of this is headed. Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah right here in this synagogue on the Sabbath day. He didn't have to heal this man with the withered hand, but he chose to do it knowing ultimately that it would lead to his death. He declares himself as God and heals on the Sabbath. And then the Pharisees are like, we got to kill this guy. Why was Jesus crucified? Because he's God and he healed on the Sabbath. (laughs) He's God and he loved people in need. And the Pharisees are like, not on my watch. You know, that doesn't fit into how we do things around here, right? That's how far gone the Pharisees had, had gotten. Notice what Jesus does next. Now it came to pass in those days, he went out into the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Jesus knows that this is going to lead to his death. And he's got a lot to wrestle with. And he chooses to get alone. He goes out into the mountain to pray. And I think that is significant for us when we think about prayer. There's something about getting alone with God. Intimacy comes from being alone. So we don't have the the distractions. And it's great to meet with God in a setting like this, but it's also great to meet with God alone. And I'd also encourage you, if, if you're like me, to go be alone with God and not take your phone. Because <laughs> if you take your phone, you're not alone, right? There's so many distractions that come with our, our phones. And to say, I'm just going to leave my phone at home. You'll be okay. Generations survived without phones, right? I'm going to go for a walk and just leave my phone in the kitchen and I'm going to spend some time reading God's word and praying where where my phone's not sitting in front of me. Getting in that mountain. Also, I think getting out in God's creation. Don't you love living in Colorado Springs? You don't have to go very far to get out in God's creation. Pretty much wherever you go in this city, you can find a great view of, of the mountains. Far better than Denver. We just won't tell them that, right? So he gets in a mountain and he continues to pray all night. Jesus did have human limitations. He's God in human flesh, but he was human, meaning that he got tired. It was difficult for Jesus to stay up all all night, but he perseveres in in prayer. Also, what we're going to find next is Jesus chooses the 12 disciples, which is a big decision. The disciples are going to be the ones that carry on the work when Jesus ascends to the Father. I'm sure he's talking and praying over with the Father. Who are these 12 that I'm supposed to choose as disciples? One that he chooses is Judas Iscariot, who is going to betray him. Another way of Jesus surrendering to his death. Also, I think that Jesus found refreshment by being alone with the Father. There's living water that comes from having time with the Father, being alone with the Father, being in prayer, being in God's word together. In verse 13, and when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. There's actually a lot in this verse. Think about this. He called his disciples to himself. This is when our relationship with Christ gets really exciting when we understand that Jesus has called us to himself. This idea of discipleship, what what does it mean? It means apprenticeship, where Jesus is the Lord, he's he's the master, 
and we choose to follow him. It was cultural. This is the way learning took place is, all right, you're going to be my disciple. You're going to come and spend time with me. It was life on life, and you're going to, to learn this skill. This is the way that rabbis would teach. And, and Jesus is calling these men into a relationship where they understand that Jesus is Lord, where they understand Jesus is the teacher, where they're willing to, to follow Christ. And I've got good news for us this morning is this is what Jesus calls each and every one of us into. He calls us to be the disciple of Christ, to be the follower of Christ. He calls us unto himself. The relationship with Jesus is a passionate pursuit. It's not just this casual thing in our lives. It's not just something that we do on Sunday mornings. But it's personal where God knows us by name where we're surrendering ourselves to him and saying, Jesus, I'm choosing to be your disciple. And this is a decision that's a moment in time that continues on. It may be that we were a disciple of Christ five years ago, but how about today? Am I following Christ? Am I hearing this call where where Jesus calls me unto himself? Honestly, this is what I missed a a lot growing up in a Christian home. And it was my, my fault is... I'm hearing the message of Christ. I knew the gospel and believed it to some extent. Went to church all the time, went to Christian school, knew, knew the verses, but I wasn't following Christ. I wasn't submitting my life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it can be almost scary because you can get to a place where you're numb. It's like, I'm, I'm going to church. I'm in a Christian school, I, I go to a youth group, I, this, is, this is what I do, but there's really no relationship with Christ or excitement about Christ. It, it's not personal. And it really felt like Charlie Brown's own. Wah, 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 and, and maybe that's what Sunday mornings is like for you, you know? It's like, man, I got to go to church. I got to be at church. My spouse is making me go to church. My parents are making me go to church. And here's the creator of the universe the lover of your soul, Jesus, who is Lord of all, that wants to be Lord of your life, where he's calling you, he's calling me into relationship with him, where we choose to follow. We say, I'm going to follow Christ. I'm going to be a disciple of Christ. This doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean we always get it right, but we understand, Jesus, you're, you're my Lord. Then the next thing that happens as their disciples he named them apostles. Well, what does that mean? Apostles simply means to be sent out. As these guys spend time with Jesus and they learn about Jesus, then they're called to go and share it. If we miss this, we're going to miss a big portion of our relationship with Jesus. What do I mean? Is why are we being taught? Why are we being encouraged? It's for the purpose of sharing with others. It even affects the way that we hear on a Sunday morning. What if we come on a Sunday morning and say, I am learning for the purpose of sharing with someone else. God, what truth do you want me to take from this message and share with my family, to to share with my coworkers, to to share with those around me? As we're together in fellowship and we're with believers that we're being built up to take the message of Jesus Christ out to those that don't know Christ as their savior. Because that's God's design. He's building us up. He's teaching us about himself to be able to send us out, 
to share with those that don't know Christ as, as their Savior. And that's also when the Christian life gets really exciting, where it's like Jesus is teaching me, he's instructing me so that I can be an encouragement to believers and reach unbelievers that, that don't know Christ as their Savior. So here's the 12 disciples. Simon, whom he's also named Peter. So Simon means stone or shifting sand. Peter means rock fortress. Jesus changed his name to Peter. It speaks of the transformative work that God did in his life. Andrew, his brother. How would you like to be Andrew? We know hardly anything about Andrew. Right? He's always in the, in the shadows of Peter. James and John, two brothers as well, the fishing partners of Peter. So these four men are fishermen, and they probably have known each other most of their lives, fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Philip, we see him a few times in the Gospels. Not a lot, but every time we see him, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. Bartholomew, we don't know a lot about Bartholomew. Matthew is Levi, the tax collector, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And Thomas, we know him for what? Doubting Thomas, right? James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot. Not a lot written about James. Simon is not Simon Peter, but Simon the Zealot. A Zealot would be one that's a Jew who wants to overthrow the Roman government. So think about this for a second. You've got a Zealot, and you've got a Roman tax collector. Now we know that Matthew was a Jew as well, because his name is Levi, Jewish name. So here you have a traitor working for the Roman government, and you have a zealot. They would have never spent time with each other prior, but as they have Jesus in common, they're brought together as disciples. And I would imagine they had some pretty interesting discussions. If you think that this group of discipleship was just all perfect with wonderful harmony, like, spend some time in the Gospels. These guys are knuckleheads. They're selfish. They're just like us. I think the message with the disciples is, man, if God can call these guys unto himself and change them and transform them, then there's hope for us as well. This is a rough group of guys that Jesus calls uh, to himself. Judas, the son of James, this is a little bit unfortunate because there is a disciple named Judas Iscariot who also becomes a traitor, but Judas, the son of James. So I'm sure he gets confused a lot, right, with Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, he becomes the treasurer. He's over the money that was involved in Christ's ministry, and he would ultimately betray Christ. A couple things just to think about with the disciples is one is not everybody's going to be Peter. Not everybody's going to be John. Not everybody's going to be James. But is Bartholomew any less significant? Bartholomew is called to the Lord and is used by the Lord. And we all have different gifts and different callings, but we're one body and it's important and it's valued to the Lord. So like the disciples, we can be encouraged to say, Jesus is calling me unto himself. Let's look at our last few verses. And he came down with them and stood on a level place 
with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases, as well of those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him, and he healed them all. What a great purpose and reason to come to Jesus, to hear his words, to be touched, to be healed, to bring the things that are tormenting us to, to Jesus. But let's think a little bit deeper. Where's this multitude at the cross? Who's standing with Jesus at, at the cross? Where's the, the multitude when Jesus lets them know that he's no longer going to be the bread king? That the free lunch is ending? Feeding of the 5,000 plus women and children. Jesus says, you're missing the message here. My body's going to be broken. I'm going to die upon the cross. And the crowds, they, they leave Jesus. And Jesus asks the disciples, are, are you going to leave too? And Peter's like, no, you alone have the, the words of life. So these crowds are coming in great numbers now as they're hearing and they're being healed. But when it came to the cross, they fell away. When it came to the cross, they, they weren't willing to, to follow Christ. Jesus is Lord of all. He's Lord of the Sabbath. By saying he's Lord of the Sabbath, he's declaring that he's God. He's Lord over our brokenness. He's Lord over our withered hand. Is he giving you an impossible command from his word? Step out in obedience and trust that he's going to give the power. He, he's Lord of our lives. He's calling us to, to be disciples. And he's Lord of our infirmities, to, to bring our sickness, to bring those things that are tormenting us to Jesus and allow the Lord to, to touch and do what he wants with, with those things. What do you think this was like for these 12 men that were called to be Jesus' disciples? Do you think they were like, oh man, this is kind of a bummer. Like, I, I got to be a disciple of Jesus. This is, this is so, so heavy. And don't get me wrong, it, it is heavy. And there's going to be a lot of sacrifice that comes for these 12 men. I think that they were excited to follow Jesus because Christ had captured their attention. They have found Jesus to be worth following. There will be a sacrifice that comes in following Jesus, but have you found him to be worth following, right? And the way that we're designed by God is we're going to follow something and we're going to follow someone, and the best person for us to follow is Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Are you tired of trying to lead yourself, trying to be your own Lord? That doesn't work out very well. It sounds good, but it leads to absolute destruction. You know, are you tired of other sinful, fallen people leading you? Yeah, that leads to destruction. There's one Jesus, there's one Savior, there's one Lord. And the best place for us to be every day of our lives is to say, Jesus, you're my Lord. Jesus, I'm surrendered to you. Jesus is calling us unto himself to spend time with him, to learn of him, to walk in obedience so that then he can send us out to do his work. You've only got one life. You don't know how long it's going to be. Life's a bit of a mystery. It's one of the things that as a pastor that's a really unique perspective is, is to watch and, and see 
people pass away at such young ages. And then others, it seems like they're a cat with nine lives. It's like, dude, you can't even die. Like you're, you're just destined to be 110 years old. It's like, I, I don't even understand this, right? And then here's this, this person over here that just slipped away into eternity. We don't know if it's going to be 39 or 89 or 14 or who knows, right? Life is a gift. And to say, Lord, I've got today and I want to follow you and I want to be used by you. So would you stand with me and let's, let's pray together. Jesus, we acknowledge that you're Lord, that you're Lord of all. And we desire for you to be Lord of our lives. We choose to follow you. We choose to put you in your proper place in, in our lives. Lord, just protect us from making your word of no effect of putting our traditions above the, the word of God, putting our opinions above the word of God. We want to hold your word in, in highest regard. And we thank you that you would be willing to call us unto yourself, that you would want to be our master, our teacher, our Lord. So teach us how to follow you and also equip us, Lord, to, to love others, Lord, to, to see the person with the withered hand around us in our families and in our church body and in our neighborhoods and workplace. So Holy Spirit, would you fill us afresh? Would you send us out into the work that you have for us? In Jesus' name, amen.